BradshawFoundation.com podcasts. A major component of the Bradshaw Foundation American Rock Art Archive is the rock art engravings of the Cozo Range, a 90 square mile area of Eastern California where 35,000 petroglyphs have formerly been recorded. This podcast is an interview with Dr. Alan P. Garfinkel on behalf of the Bradshaw Foundation with Joseph Scott. For more information on the rock art of the Kozo Range, go to www.bradshawfoundation.com forward slash America. So our first question here is um, Kozo rock art. When most people think of art, they think of famous paintings and sculptures. Can you tell us what rock art is and what is so unique about rock art? Okay. Uh, when we th- the term rock art is, is often misunderstood and it's not a very good term, but it's the one that we use often. When you think of the rock art, even if you Google it on the internet, you'll sometimes you'll run into rock and roll art <laughs> instead of rock art. What rock art is supposed to be is aboriginal graphics on stone. These are indigenous uh, drawings, representations of imagery that has been fashioned on rocks. And most of these, of course, are from pre-literate societies, prehistoric rock drawings and rock paintings. And so uh, when we talk about rock art and we, as a subject heading, we have agreed that what we're dealing with are the images fashioned by pre-industrial societies, for the most part, pre-literate societies during the prehistoric era. Of course, there are often historic paintings and historic drawings as well, and those are included under rock art as well. But for the, for the most part, the lion's share of this iconography, this subject matter, are, are prehistoric rock drawings. Um, in the New World, in the Americas, uh, these are imagery that appears from the late Pleistocene, we believe, or even early Holocene, 10, 11, 12, 13,000 years ago, on up to the uh, historic times of the historic Euro-American intrusions. And uh, throughout the United States, throughout North America, we have things that we call rock drawings. These are petroglyphs. And rock paintings, we call them pictographs. Now, the same terminology is not used uh, all over the world, but that is one that's common in the United States. Thank you. And as an archaeologist and anthropologist, you have a level of understanding that is slightly different than the average person. Can you tell us what are some of the current anthropological and archaeological meanings of Koso rock art? Additionally, what do archaeologists think is the purpose of such art in the Koso range? Uh, Rock art in the Koso range has been studied for decades, uh, beginning perhaps with Julian Stewart's work in the 20s, where he alludes to the, to the rock art in the Coso Range. And of course, the Coso Range is a, a range of volcanic mountains and valleys in eastern California, in the southwestern corner of the Great Basin, in uh, eastern California, uh, just north of the towns of Inyo Kern and Ridgecrest. And this, this Coso Range 
is, is known worldwide for its unusual concentration of rock art. Uh, we have minimally, in a conservative estimate, 100,000 individual images, elements, adorning the rocks in perhaps a 90 or 100 square mile area. Uh, recently, uh, in a 10-year study of just one of those locations out in Little Lake by Joanne Van Tilburg, documented thousands upon thousands of rock art images uh, adorning the rocks in a very, very small location. So we're talking about a very high density of rock art. We're also talking about an unusual profusion of naturalistic or representational rock art. This is imagery that, that appears to be uh, fashioned in a way that one can tell what was being represented. There have been many uh, theories, models, explanatory platforms addressing COSO rock art. I'd say the earliest one was in the majority emphasizing what was termed hunting magic. That was put forth by Iser and Baumhoff, also uh, Jay von Werloff in his study of the Owens Valley rock art, probably Julian Stewart to some extent, and I have to say that I probably followed in lockstep to some extent with respect to Campbell Grant and colleague Grant Baird and Pringle's book, and also my own research on the Coso range. There's, that's one sort of school of thinking that looks at the rock art in the main in association or perhaps from an explanatory standpoint, looking at the association of the, of the imagery and its association with hunting of large game, principally bighorn sheep. A whole other realm of expl explanation has been followed by people like David Lewis Williams and David Whitley and James Pearson and, and many others who tend to emphasize the role of ritual elitists, uh, experts, ritual people who are medicine people or shaman and who perhaps fashioned these images in, uh, in after having an experience with an altered state of consciousness. So from their view, many of these images relate to a commemoration, a memorialization of the visions, visions of these ritual adepts during uh, dream states or visions induced by elements that would cause them to have altered states of consciousness. What we're saying is this could be produced by the use of psychotropic substances, uh, could be done through fasting, through uh, the use of native tobacco in a variety of ways. And what was, what was being done is they were commemorating their journey into the supernatural. Besides that, uh, David Whitley, who has been extremely prolific and put the Coso rock art on the worldwide map, has taken this one step further and believes that this shamanic rock art was specifically uh, functioned to uh, induce rain and for rain shamans 
to then use this rock art as a metaphor for bringing the rain to the Coso range, uh, to, in, in essence, causing uh, the environment to be more productive and to be full of water. Because water, of course, was a priority for these uh, desert Great Basin nomads. And the Coso range, of course, is one of the driest places on Earth. It's only one mountain range away from Death Valley. So certainly rain was important to the Coso inhabitants. But in a broader sense, uh, I don't believe that Whitley's notions and the hunting magic models are totally incongruous or, or totally incompatible. I think that much of the iconography relates to increased rights, fecundity, and fertility, and keeping the animals coming, keeping the, keeping the, the grass and the water coming, and renewing life, and allowing for a, the, the survival of a people in a very challenging environment. Do you think that Coso rock art can be placed on a larger global context? Or is its context defined regionally and, uh, and or site specific? I think Coso rock art fits into some of the same sorts of iconography associated with animal ceremonialism coming out of Siberia. It also is a manifestation in part of the religious traditions of foragers worldwide that have been associated with the concept of animism. And so to an animistic society, a hunter-gatherer society, we're dealing with people who believe that the life force, the vital life force, the power of life is found in all things be they rocks, trees, plants, water, animals. Most importantly, also they recognized that animals were immortal. They would die and be killed, but their souls would live on. The souls would either go up to a, a, a world, a sort of a celestial kingdom, or another world below, and there would be a master or mistress of animals that would revitalize, reflesh, and renew these animals that would appear again in the spring. So we're talking about a cycle, and it's a worldwide cycle. It's the cycle of uh, ascent and descent, and it also is a ritualistic tradition, whereby in the fall, we have rites that relate to uh, post-mortem ceremonies or we revere the animals that were killed, and we ask for the good favor of the animal master to allow us to hunt again and to renew the landscape and bring the animals back to propitiate for the uh, taking of the game and to allow it to continue. Now, after that game uh, is, is gone, the souls of those animals go down either to the depths or up to the heights, and then they are rebirthed, reborn anew. 
And in the spring, the cycle continues with the ascent of those animals through portals, be they springs, tanks, cracks in the rocks, caves, and the animals replenish the landscape. And this is timed with the ceremonial cycle in the spring, where we have the world renewal ceremonies. Uh, this is associated with uh, aggregation of people, also with ceremonies of world renewal, dances, sings, and, and other such functions. In the earlier in the ascent period is when we find uh, these, these harvests, these communal harvests, when the animals are aggregated. And then in the spring, it's also focused on plants and the renewal of the earth. As in any art form, there are major themes and motifs which are discernible to an educated per, uh, patron. What are the major themes and motifs that typify Koso rock art? Are these themes and motifs specific in their purpose or function? Or do these themes and motifs express perhaps a larger and more complex functionality? Again, quite a discussion, quite a, quite a mouthful to, to try to reflect and define. When you look at the Koso corpus, the assemblage of rock art elements, most of those, or an abundance of those, are characteristic of the greater Great Basin, the Desert West, and you would find them elsewhere. Also, they have relationships with the American Southwest, so there are elements that would appear there as well. Most of those that are characteristic of the larger regions in North America and even throughout the world are the abstract elements or the simple uh, non, how would you put it? They're, they're simple, they're, they're rather unelaborated. They're, they're, they're simple geometrics, designs, abstract elements, and that would form, I would say, 30 to 40% of what we see in the Kosos. What makes the Kosos different and somewhat unique and have sort of a, a special flair is the artistic fluorescence that occurs in this region. And in this region, during a period of, let's say, 600 to 1,000 years, from about AD 300 to about AD 1300, we see an explosion of rock art. 50% of the images are bighorn sheep. The bighorn sheep are done predominantly in a particular style. And this style has been called the hallmark style or the Koso style bighorn sheep. There's been a lot of misunderstanding about that. When we say about Koso style bighorn sheep, we're first of all talking exclusively about petroglyphs about rock drawings. And Koso style bighorn sheep are the classic Koso style. What does that mean? Well, they're full, they're, they're, they're bighorn sheep that have navicular forms. They have convex bellies, they have flat backs, and they have a full front-facing face with bifurcating horns 
So the, the, the face itself is inside profile, but the horns are full, front-facing, and are available in a bifurcated fashion. You see the whole animal, and it's there to be uh, digested, reflected, evaluated, and it goes from a very small image to a life-size image, even larger than life-size. The bighorn sheep during this period may get up to four, five, six, or seven feet in length. Now, with all that said, there's another set of iconography besides the bighorn that bears some discussion, and that is what's called the pattern-bodied anthropomorphs. Now, these are figures that are somewhat iconic in the sense that they are flat, they are exposed, they're front-facing, and they are conflations of animals and people. They're, all, they're often shown with one, one arm up in the air, holding a long rod, another arm down towards the ground, holding a, a series of smaller rods with stick-like or avian legs, bird-like legs, and bird-like feet. The form of the, of the head is on a short neck, and the head is a circle, often a concentric circle, and very, very frequently they are adorned with feathers. And the feathers may be uh, a single feather or multiple feathers, up to, let's say, 15 to 20 different feathers. And also, very frequently, you do see feathers that would have to be the top knots of quail. They are angled emanations that are unmistakably quail top knots. Now, th those figures are interesting because I we wrote an article about this recently and identified a, a hypothesis that these may actually be depictions of an animal master-like being that is discussed extensively in the Kawaiisu oral traditions. The reason we, we jumped to that particular analogy is because in the literature they talk about this deity as, as living in the underworld, as being, as coming like a quail, as being a master of the animals in this netherworld, actually coming and going through portals, cracks in the rocks or caves. Uh, also, this particular creature can be male or female. It is said that men dream of it as a woman, women dream of it as a man, and that as well, it is a bird. Besides coming like a quail, it is a bird, it could be a, a small hawk. Additionally, it has uh, you know, the particular function of assisting hunters in becoming more successful. It provides luck to hunters. It also provides a way to heal those who are sick. And in this uh, treasure trove down below in this netherworld, this 
creature, this deity that masters all of the animals, provides a never-ending bounty to his visitors, his or her visitors, and when they come in, they actually re receive either food or uh, other sorts of uh, ways to be hospitable. And additionally, they are given a song or a talisman that will help them in life. Um, song is interesting. Songs are powerful. They're religiously powerful. And the, the animal master is interesting because there is such a close analogy to these bird-like creature in this netherworld. As well, when one visits the creature, whose name in Kauaisu is Yahwera, the Yahwera term has associations, metaphoric associations, with the netherworld, with death, with bird-like screeching. All these elements are incorporated into the Kauaisu name for this creature. In this netherworld, Yahwera has several guards that bring people through when they visit him. So he's guarded by a rattlesnake, guarded by a kogo, which I think is a bull snake, and then also by a black bear and a grizzly bear. So these are all the creatures that sort of serve as the right-hand men and women to Yahweh's home and uh, watch out for him or her when visitors come. Now, I kind of came far afield, but in any, any, in any sense, in the Koso iconography, there are hundreds. Uh, Campbell Grand estimated 700 examples that he counted of this creature, these PBAs. Pattern body anthropomorphs. A recent study that's unpublished as of yet, but in press from Caroline Maddox, was ident identified 450, which she sketched and described and classified. So PBAs are a big part of the assemblage. So are bighorn sheep. Besides that, we see ritual elements identified in the iconography. You see men with bows and arrows. You see hunters following the bighorn sheep with dogs. We also see men with otlottles, spear throwers. We also see ceremonial gatherings. So we see uh, men and women holding hands and doing round dances and circle dances. And this is shown. We also see big linear lines of people. An additional element that hasn't been discussed to any great extent is we also see bull roarers and whole uh, sides of canyons that are covered with dozens and dozens of bull roarers. And these, of course, would be associated ceremonially with the supernatural access of the power to make it rain. So in that sense, we see a lot, of, a lot of elements there that come together. I think the ritualistic elements, the ceremonial elements, and the concept of increase, renewal, power over the environment, the elements to bring a renewal of the seeds and the animals, and keeping the, the increase 
coming and preserving the Koso world is a central theme of this iconography. Well, you've told us a lot about the art, but who are the artists <laughs> of the Koso world art? Well, I wasn't there, so I, I don't know exactly. <laughs> but, I, but I would guess they were Koso folk, people who lived there as foragers, who made their life in the Koso range. They mined the volcanic glass, the uh, rocks on fire there in the Kosos, and lived their lives for centuries and ultimately millennia. They were people who were hunter-gatherers. They were non-agriculturalists. I think they were people who were devout and worshipers and felt themselves special to live in this land that was blessed with bighorn sheep that was blessed with rocks on fire, that was given an opportunity to quarry the black glass and stone and trade it uh, across the east and west, the width of California. One of the things that, were mo that I think was very important to them is they probably were recognized as people of the sheep. And that's probably what they were called and how they recognized themselves. So I would think that they were people who were proud of living in the Kosos, proud of living in an area that was so remarkable and was blessed with some interesting natural resources. Although it was extremely dry and, and uh, it was difficult to live, I, I feel that these people were probably a proud people and a very artistic people. Now, one of the interesting sidebars in all of this is that they had at their disposal, at their fingertips, control of one of the largest volcanic glass obsidian toolstone sources in all of California. And I think this helped them in terms of trade and exchange and their life and living uh, in an area that, that, that had a lack of many of the other sort of natural resources, food and subsistence resources, that was found in other areas of California. So they use this as a means probably of trading with their neighbors and acquiring some of the subsistence resources that others would not have been able to gather in their home territory. What have been major, the major discoveries in North America which have contributed to a deeper understanding of coastal rock art? Well, I don't think that much of the discoveries in North America in, in general, have really contributed to our understanding of coastal rock art with any great extent. I think we have begun to understand that coastal people and coastal rock art has a great deal of time depth. So from that standpoint, I think some of the discoveries of the great nature of the millennia upon millennia of occupation and Aboriginal activity in America has in fact influenced our understanding and made us cognizant of the longevity of Koso occupation. So that, that's one right there. But I think that many of the other areas that are trying to be pioneered still uh, gives us pause in the sense of trying to understand this unbelievably overwhelming count of imagery. Uh, that's, that's what you're hit with. When you go to the Kosos 
and you try to look and understand the images, when you look in even a single canyon, let's say Little Petroglyph Canyon, where the, it's available to the general public, we're looking at miles upon miles of rock art on both sides of the canyon, and we're seeing an unbelievable array of artistic renditions. And I think that the first sense you have is you're overwhelmed by the character of this imagery, the density of it, and the layer upon layer, the generation upon generation of activity in these canyons. And it is, uh, it's awe-inspiring, and in fact is, is very overwhelming, and it also is, has, has such a, almost a supernatural and religious quality to it when you're there seeing the record of a people amassed over thousands and thousands of years before your eyes. In your research, have you come across any major surprises which have affected the current level of understanding um, regarding Koso Rucker? I would say yes. Some of the biggest surprises I've had is, is when I began to notice scratched rock art. Now when I say scratched rock art, I mean that initially when Campbell Grant did his work, it was something that was completely overlooked. Yet recently, I think beginning with Bettinger and Baumhoff's study on the Numic expansion, there has been a discussion, and of course a controversial one at that, is what are what is scratched rock art? Is it numic? Is it numic scratched rock art? Numic meaning Great Basin Shoshonean people from the last, let's say, 500 to 1,000 years, who manufactured this different style of rock art, representing simply little tiny scratches, rectilinear scratches, and, and other elements across the older, pecked, and much more ornate panels. That's one thing. Very recently, independent of sort of the scratched rock art, is my identification so the tale of the tales, and that is, I've noticed that for millennia, for many, many centuries, if you study the, the animal imagery in the Kosos, you'll see that the tails are always rendered up in the air. And why the tails were rendered in that particular way is, of course, up for grabs. I wasn't there, so I don't know. But I would say that some people, quite a number of them now, the, the lion's share, the overwhelming evidence seems to support that what was what we were trying, what those tales up in the air meant, had to do with sexually receptiveness, fecundity, fertility, and this had to do with procreation and co copulation of these animals, indicating that this was a, a means of identifying fertility. Interestingly enough, petroglyphs, rock drawings, hundreds of years, thousands of years in the Kosos show them with tails up in the air. All the bighorn sheep always have their tails up in the air. Lo and behold, about a hundred years ago, there was a style of rock art, rock paintings, that either copied or continued a tradition of depicting animals and used pigment. Instead of being in open air sites, they were inside caves. Well, this these polychrome pigmented sites that depict animals include bighorn sheep 
and other creatures and human forms, instead of their tails being up in the air, as they were for centuries and millennia, they are down, downward, and emphasized as being down. Why is that so? I'm not sure. Could be several different reasons. Could be a change in people, could be a population replacement, a, an actual different ethnic entity that's fashioning these imageries, these images, the numic versus the pre-numic people. It could be that they're doing this for a whole different purpose and a different style and a different socio-ceremonial complex. So these are two things that recently have rung my chimes <laughs> and I thought were interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about how archaeologists date rock art? Not very well. <laughs> They've had a hard time, a very difficult time dating rock art. How do we date rock art? Well, we try, we try to date it as many different ways as we possibly can. We do it based on patination. We do it based on superimposition. We do it based on subject matter. We do it based on associations. We try to directly date it with... Uh, if it's organic, we try to do radiocarbon dates. We've also done experimental approaches using uh, desert varnish dating, using things called cation ratio dating or varnish lamination dating or experimental XRF dating, uh, all kinds of different ways. And of course, with all these different ways, we also have all kinds of different assessments of the ages of the rock garden. So I think when it comes right down to the ages of rock art and how to date it, the best thing to do is use as many different ways to date it as possible, intercalibrate those dates, and see if, they're, if they are valid. And, and also check for uh, the associations of rock art with the archaeological record. One of the ways I think that makes some sense is to look for single component rock art sites that are associated with archaeological deposits. They do this in the Southwest. And I think we can date them by dating the deposits. We might, in turn, date the rock art. In academic circles, do you think rock art in the Americas is underrepresented and carries with it a certain stigmatism among professional archaeologists and anthropologists? I think so. I think there's a problem with the discipline of rock art. Even rock art specialists have told me that, you know, Alan, it's only rock art, which means it's sort of a, a stepchild to the archaeological profession. It's not seen as mainstream academic science and has been so in America for quite some time. I think it's moving out of that particular stepchild corner status, but ever so slowly. Uh, it has tremendous potential to inform on ritual, ceremony, ideology, and all other aspects, integrating with the broader archaeological record. And I think rock art can produce one of the most outstanding contributions to the science when it comes to sort of putting flesh on the bones of prehistory. And finally, can you tell us about your time in the field and maybe some of the experiences you have had? Hmm. Well, I've been working on Koso rock art for over 30 years, for three decades. Began in 77 or so, when I lived at a Little Lake Hotel and was a graduate student intern, and began to document the Coso Range rock art in and about Little Lake and Fossil Falls. 
Now, through that time, I became literally obsessed with trying to understand the nature of those images. They sort of stuck with me <laughs> and very, uh, very memorable, to put it mildly. Uh, my, every time I go out into the Kosos with uh, Ken Pringle or with anyone else, it's always a, a tremendous adventure. The Weapons Center at China Lake, there just north of Ridgecrest, is a treasure in that since the 1930s, it protected the environment and the fragile prehistoric archaeological sites within their domain. And because of that, you see things you would never have an opportunity to see again. The archaeological sites are pristine, untouched, and impeccably preserved. As well, you have the wildlife and the fauna. You have the horses that roam the range. You have the burros that are there. We now have the bighorn sheep coming back into the Kosos. Bighorn sheep, of course, were, were gone and appear to have been uh, exterminated or depressed in number from the efforts of the natives over the years in terms of exploiting them for a major food source. That seemed to have occurred over the course of the, during the Hayley period, about AD 600 to AD 1000, and that may have been the reason for the proliferation of rock art as it's correlated with the resource depression. But when you're there on site at the base documenting rock art, it's just a wonderful experience because you get to see the natural world in a way that you wouldn't see otherwise. The archaeological sites are pristine. It's as though you have stepped back into the past. The flora and fauna is robust and abundant. I've seen deer, stags in the, in the Joshua Tree Forest. We've seen bighorn drinking at, out at Little Lake. We've seen um, a lot of the, uh, the uh, riparian birds out there as well, the, the coots and the grebes and the ducks. So for all of that and much, much more, it's really a privilege and an honor to experience the COSOs through, the, through a very special set of eyes. Thank you very much. That's all the questions that we have for today. And once again, this is Joseph Scott. And Alan Garfinkel. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. To find out more about rock art and cave paintings and the world of our ancestors, visit our website at www.bradshawfoundation.com.